This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Brian Ping, in this week for Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. So, L.A., are you ready for a businessman to run the city? Could happen. Rick Caruso, one of two candidates, now leading the field. Now, we talked to his primary rival, you may remember, Karen Bass. That was last week. Now it is Caruso's turn to chat with us, so we will go in-depth with him in the last half hour of the show to find out how he plans to run the city, that is, if you vote for him. More water restrictions begin tomorrow in Los Angeles. Outdoor watering will be limited to two days a week because of the historic drought. And President Biden is saying that part of the White House plan to battle inflation is going to be to listen to the Federal Reserve. The school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, has led to national gun control, just not here in the U.S., rather in Canada, we'll explain. The European Union hits Russia with the harshest sanctions yet during its war with Ukraine, and it has to do with oil. And some sugar in your coffee, get this, can be the difference between life and an earlier death. So I wonder, though, if that means, and I guess we'll find out, that we have to put a lot of sugar in. Well, a spoonful no of sugar helps spoon the medicine sugar. go down. Maybe, Maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll, we'll find it. Because I have coffee now. Yeah. But I don't know if I should drink it yet. you got to add the sugar. Uh, if not, then it? it, it's oh. just blown out of, <laughs> okay. out of whack. We start, though, with the new water restrictions in L.A. and whether they're going to work. Sam Sandoval Solis is a water resources uh, professor at UC Davis, principal investigator of the university's water management resource uh, group. Sam, thanks for being with us. So uh, that's the question. Is it going to work? Yeah. Hey, hi, Brian. Hi, uh, Charles. Yes, I think it is going to work. Basically, what the Metropolitan Water District uh, has done is kind of create a water budget, and they are penciling out how much water can be used indoors and outdoors. And just to go ahead of time, they are thinking that just watering twice a twice a week that will be uh, enough, and yeah, they, it's, it's good that they are kind of doing these uh, numbers ahead of time. But is that really going to work though? Because you know, people water twice a week. I mean, is that a drop in the bucket? I mean, forgive the pun, but you know, we've got uh, you know people using lots of water for agriculture in the state. So many uses, and these are you know people's lawns. Yeah, it's a big percentage. But how much is this really going to uh, save our water here? So, so yes, it is going to save water. So, um, I mean, the drought is, uh, we are all in the drought. So we should be also uh, all uh, helping it out. Um, it is good to have everyone in their in their minds. Um, the water, the, the Metropolitan Water District only has a certain, a certain budget there. So that's what they are adjusting. Uh, yeah, in the larger scheme, I mean, agriculture use uh, water. Uh, most of the water use actually on 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 us is in in our daily diet, so that is that is that is something that is uh, going to happen. Yeah, but but here's the mm-hmm. thing. But here's the thing, Sam. Because I'm I'm thinking back yeah. and uh, during the pandemic, I mean, people were supposed to wear masks. A lot of them said no, we're not going to. People were supposed to get vaccinated. Some people said no, we're not going to. People were told all sorts of things, and they just simply said no, we're not going to. Uh, if there isn't really strict enforcement, and I'm not hearing really what the enforcement is going to be on this, uh, I have, I just have this suspicion that a lot of folks are going to go, no, nah, I'm not going to. I'm going to water my lawn as much as I want to. You, you know, I, I agree on that one. I, I think, uh, I mean, the first part is that um, it has to be like what we are doing here, making sure that people are aware that these restrictions are coming. 
uh, there will be something called a conservation response unit that they will be uh, going out and, and they will uh, first uh, deliver some warnings and then start putting some fines. It seems that the last time, the last drought, they issue about 552 citations. And so these were warnings, right? And then 15 resulted in fines. So once people are aware that they are doing it or that they are overwatering, then if they don't modify it, uh, the 15 resulted in fines. Uh, the director of the Metropolitan Water District, uh, uh, his last name is Perry John. Uh, basically, he, he mentions that, well, you know, if we see uh, customers that are, what you're saying, not following the instructions, then, I mean, they will kind of cut off the their service. What kind so, of, yeah, they... Uh-huh. What kind of fines are we talking about here? So, for the first... For the first fine, it will be $200. Second will be, uh, no, the first one is a warning. The second is a $200 uh, fine. And third, $400. Uh, and fourth, or more, $600. Okay, okay. But if I own a, a very large uh, property in some of these areas that are, you know, repeat water offenders, I have a you know, multi-million dollar property. What's $600, really? I'm just going to keep watering. Yeah, and and you know that is uh, that that is one of the problems that it, that the reality is that sometimes it might be not significant for certain um, people. I do think that uh, besides that, uh, what what we're doing here, which is um, putting the social pressure right, um, and and that uh, I hope that will help it out. It seems that so when when we were in the same situation. Uh, three four years ago, uh, we stepped to the to the tasks. So I I hope that we will do it again. Sam Sandoval, Solis, Water Resources Professor at UC Davis and Principal Investigator of the University's Water Management Research Group. Sam, thank you. Inflation, a lot of people are thinking about it. Certainly, President Biden is. He met earlier today with Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell. Now, this came after the president wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about inflation and the economy. With us to try to explain this is William Luther, economics professor at Florida Atlantic University, director of the American Institute for Economic Research's Sound Money Project. William, thanks for being with us. So, yeah, I mean, inflation is something that everybody is certainly noticing at the gas pump this weekend at the grocery store, trying to buy stuff for maybe a Memorial Day feast. What's the president's plan? Well, uh, let's start with what the president gets right. Uh, if you read that uh, Wall Street Journal op-ed, uh, the, the first prong of his plan is to trust the Federal Reserve. Uh, he says that the, the Federal Reserve has the primary responsibility to control inflation, and that is absolutely right. Ultimately, uh, what, what we've had over the last year is a monetary policy problem, and the only way we're going to bring that inflation back down is with a monetary policy solution. Right, but I'm going to stop you right there because, and I think you may even know what's coming, <laughs> you do. The, the Federal Reserve, and you know this, and I'm sure the president must, the Federal Reserve has a terrible record of getting this stuff right. I mean, when they've tried in the past to walk that fine line between controlling inflation and kicking off a recession, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think their historic track record is all that good. Well, we don't even have to go back very far. We can just look at their performance over the last year, which has been uh, terrible. <laughs> um, okay. They, 
they are, are currently projecting that inflation is going to be above their 2% average inflation target through 2024. So, you know, I'm not suggesting that the Fed is going to do everything right here, but it is their responsibility. And they, you know, that is the institution that has the tools to, to tackle this inflation problem. Whether they will do so, that's a that's a separate issue. <laughs> I think he, the president wanted to draw the line between the previous administration where we saw tweets that say, hey, Jay, Jerome, lower the interest rates. So we're not going to see that. He's, he's basically putting it in the Fed's hands. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what he says. Um, and, and, and perhaps he, he should have just stopped there because much of the rest of his proposal just, just doesn't really deal directly with inflation. Um, it's just uh, you know ways to to pursue his policy agenda under the heading of inflation um, without actually having a direct effect on inflation. Uh, give us one or two examples of what he wants to do. So, for example, he um, you know he wants to give, give credits for for green energy um, and to make some green energy investments. Now, maybe you think that's a good idea, or maybe you think that's a bad idea, but it's not the kind of idea that's going to bring down inflation. Um, it's, uh, at worst, uh, just putting more money in people's pockets to spend, and that spending is going to drive up prices. If the Fed's doing its job, it's going to be inconsequential for, for inflation. And so just not really suited to the task at hand in terms of, you know, is this going to bring down inflation? Uh, no. <laughs> the president's poll numbers are suffering because of this very issue. It's something that could potentially sink his presidency. He's putting an awful lot of faith in an institution that, as uh, you and Charles have clearly pointed out, is not exactly an institution you want to put your faith in all the time. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, that's right. Um, and, you know, frankly, it's not really, really clear what the president would want Powell to do. Um, you know, monetary policy tools are, are famously blunt, as, as Powell himself has acknowledged uh, not too long ago. And, and if the, the Fed brings down inflation uh, uh, very quickly, it could, it could generate a, a big recession. And that's not going to be good for the president's reelection odds uh, okay. either. So, All right. so, so kind of, uh, you know, on the wire. <laughs> so, so economics professor, here's your chance. You're the president now. What do you want the Fed to do? Well, the problem is that we're saying, you know, what do we do now that we haven't done what we should have done? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And that's that's very difficult, right? What what the, the president should have done uh, back in October is uh, to remind the Fed that it's their responsibility to control inflation. Um, you know, the, the Fed, uh, it it didn't raise its federal funds rate target until March. It didn't really get, uh, you know, take a serious stance on inflation until May. Okay, but that's uh, the it past. acknowledged the what, problem in December. That's right? the past. But very quickly now, what would you do going forward? Well, we're in a mess and there's not an easy exit, uh, but but we have to bring down inflation. Uh, we, we won't have well-functioning labor markets if, if inflation uh, remains this high. Uh, and so, you know, there there may be some costs of doing that in terms of a, a recession at this point. Um, but but I think that that's, uh, you know, for the long for the long run, um, the Fed has to bring down inflation. Professor William Luther at FAU, director of the American Institute for Economic Research's Sound Money Project. Professor, thank you.
The EU has taken a big step against Russia over the war in Ukraine. It's agreed to ban most imports of Russian oil. This is the hardest economic penalty put on Russia so far during this conflict. It comes as Russia is pressing on with its offensive in eastern Ukraine. With us again is Tim Milovanov, president of the Kiev School of Economics and economics professor at the University of Pittsburgh, who is in Kiev now. Uh, Professor, thanks for joining us. Of course, this comes with uh, a lot of pain uh, throughout the world, really, and uh, we can't escape that here in California, we're seeing record high gas prices, and this certainly has something to do with it, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. Um, and also food prices, um, with food security being put at risk uh, with Russia blockading supplies of grain uh, from Ukraine and elsewhere, uh, plus energy, as you said, plus increasing instability because of the continuing offensive. Yeah, that, that has an effect on prices uh, across the globe. This deal that the European Union has come up with to phase out uh, the oil that is uh, exempt from, by the way, pipelines, as I understand it, at least for the time being, um, that was to placate countries like Hungary. So how is this news, how is this agreement going over in Ukraine, as far as you could tell? Yeah, there are at least three factors here. Um, the EU wants to show unity, and so it has compromised on uh, allowing um, the Hungarian demands to be met. Um, then the immediate effect of this um, ban, um, is, by the way, it's not uh, it's not coming into effect until later in the year. It's just been passed right now. So the immediate effect is uh, changing the expectations that we are going to see this um, economic fight too. Uh, for long, uh, for longer haul, and um, it will starve or it will decrease the the Russian uh, reserves or the the financial uh, assets, um, but not to the not to an extreme because they're still selling gas, and so I expect that there will be further uh, discussions later about the gas embargo, which will have additional effects on the prices across the globe. And I think this signals that the EU and the world is preparing for a medium to the longer term conflict because they're going with the sanctions, trying to make Russia uh, financially vulnerable. But we know it works. It takes time for those sanctions to work. Uh, Professor, are there other potential markets that Russia can go towards outside of the EU? Certainly there are a lot of places around the world that could uh, you know, definitely use uh, cheaper oil that Russia can offer now. So are, are, do those markets exist, and do you expect them to exploit that? Um, yeah, there are secondary ways to trade. Um, um, it's not as easy as it might sound, uh, in particular because of the logistics. And the logistics, the distances, the uh, ports, um, the um, the ship, the cargo fleet, all that matters. Um, but, of course, uh, Russia could trade with China, uh, could trade with India, uh, but the U.S. and the EU will be putting pressure uh, and sometimes, you know, offering some kind of incentives, carrots, not only stick, for those countries to, to minimize that secondary leakage uh, from the embargo. Uh, so it's not gonna, the embargo is not going to be perfect, um, but um, there is this logistical, there is secondary sanctions pressure, and there is also the fact that the type of oil which is being sent to Europe um, is, is sort of specific to, uh, well, there is larger demand in Europe. While substitution is possible, it's not perfect. 
Tim Ulovanoff, president of the Kiev School of Economics and economics professor at Pitt. Professor, thank you for joining us. This is KNX In-Depth. Brian Ping in for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Funerals have already started for some of the 19 children and two teachers killed in the Uvalde, Texas school shooting last week. President Biden has said he's hopeful Congress can come up with some kind of gun control measure soon. Well, while the president here is waiting and hoping, Canada is not. It announced new regulations on handguns, proposing to also have people turn in their assault weapons with us to try to explain what Canada is doing and maybe more importantly what we're not is Mark Day, news anchor and talk show host for City News Ottawa. Mark, thanks for being with us. Of course. Uh, thanks for having me on today. So uh, here, as I'm sure you know, in the, in the U.S., uh, this debate has been going on endlessly about what to do about gun violence, which keeps getting worse, it seems, almost on a, on a weekly basis. Uh, how is it that easy? Is it that easy, as it seems, for Canada to be able to deal with this? Yeah, you know, looking at what, what the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, announced yesterday, um, this is something, this is a bill that they tried to pass before the, the last federal election uh, in the fall here in, in Canada. So this new bill will expand and, and strengthen the previous bill, which was a C-21, and that failed to pass Parliament before the last election addresses some of the concerns raised by experts, gun safety advocates over that legislation. Um, and, and of course, you know, as of right now, there's a lot of support for it. Uh, even the Conservative government of Canada, who are more right-leaning uh, uh, than the Liberal government uh, right now, are you know, they're concerned with uh, the rights of legal gun owners in Canada. But, you know, following the, the shooting in Buffalo, and I think, you know, of course, what happened in Texas, the tragedy there, uh, it will be very hard for any other party here in Canada to take issue with any of these changes uh, that were presented yesterday. What is gun culture like in Canada vis-a-vis the U.S.? I mean, certainly you have people, I mean, Canada has got lots of wide open spaces like the U.S. does, you know, you have a lot of hunting, guns are have many practical uses, uh, but... There's a lot of you know pride associated with you know the rights of gun ownership in the U.S. or the Second Amendment, and you know get your hands off of my firearms. Does that exist to any sort of that kind of degree uh, in Canada? And not really in Canada. I mean, there are you know there are supporters of, of gun legislation in Canada, and there are those who are, as you said, hunters. I mean, so it's a vast land here in Canada. A lot of sportsmanship and, and a lot of hunting, uh, you know, goes into a, you know having a gun. But you have to have a gun license in Canada. Uh, to even qualify to get a gun. So, you know, you go through those stages of, of filing and, and, you know, there's a lot of background checks that already go into that process of, of uh, acquiring a gun in Canada. Where the major issue is here for us in terms of violence, that's in the big cities. Uh, even in Toronto with gun violence, the city here in Ottawa, we see gun violence. Um, you know, that's, that's uh, an issue that has been raised by mayors of those cities over the last number of years. And we've had our own mass shootings here in Canada, the most recent one in 2020. Uh, so, I mean, there, there is, uh, you know, it is on, on, the, on the radar of a lot of politicians, uh, but not so much uh, for people who live outside of major cities who don't necessarily see a lot of that gun violence day to day. Is there a, uh, an equivalent in Canada to our Second Amendment? Is there something in the basic fabric of your government that 
people, Canadians can look at who want to own guns and say, no, 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 we have a right to own these weapons no matter what anyone thinks? There is not in Canada. I think that's you know that's the the main difference between uh, our two countries is we don't we don't have that written into you know in terms of a constitution we don't have that into our, our freedom our, our bill of rights here in in Canada. Uh, so we we don't have a, the the same. Um, it's not the same here in Canada, and I think that's what even makes it easier for the government, the Liberal government and the Prime Minister, to come forward with these types of measures. You know, with, with this national handgun freeze, essentially what it will do is is prevent individuals from buying, selling, or transferring handguns and, and putting a cap on guns. But, you know, if if you talk to a lot of you know, experts in this country, the main issue with guns, it's it's not the legal gun owners, it's the illegal guns that are being smuggled across the border. Uh, a lot of those guns that are being used for crimes here in Canada and a lot of those uh, major cities who are having the issues, uh, you know, there, there's a, they don't know the numbers, but they know that a vast majority are coming over the border from the United States. Mark, last week, right after the shooting, we spoke with uh, people in Australia and New Zealand, which, like Canada, members of the Commonwealth, English-speaking nations, they are well off. And, you know, similar populations, at least Australia is. But they were able to enact gun control legislation lightning quick right after mass tragedies. And while something of that degree hasn't happened uh, recently in Canada, Buffalo is right on your doorstep. And, of course, uh, the whole U.S. is, when we talk about any mass shooting here. So do you anticipate that... We could see some swift new measures uh, enacted there, uh, like we saw overseas. I believe so. I think we may see it here in Canada. And uh, the the issue is, of course, timing, because the House of Commons, there's only a few weeks left, and then they go on a summer break. That break lasts until September. So if they're going to move on this and move swiftly and quickly and get this legislation into law, it's going to have to happen, uh, you know, within the next couple of weeks. And with what we've uh, witnessed in the United States in, in the past uh, month and, and, of course, over the years, like I, I was saying, it's going to be hard for that conservative government uh, to really uh, not support these measures uh, that are being put into place. Uh, and, and, you know, we've heard that, you know, they support legal gun owners in Canada. That's the, the one thing that will continue. If you own a gun in Canada, a handgun, you will still be able to own that gun. Um, uh, it's just for new gun owners. If you want to buy a new gun, uh, there will be a cap and you won't be able to do it after this legislation goes into place. In fact, we were learning today, we were talking to a few advocates who said they believe that you're going to see an uptick in uh, handgun sales in Canada because of this law that may come into effect. All right, that's a perspective from Canada's capital, Mark Day with City News Ottawa. Mark, thanks. Well, pouring that uh, spoonful of sugar into your coffee can not only make it taste better, it could keep you alive longer. Yay. Really? Okay. Well, a new study in the Annals of Internal Medicine finds that people who drink their coffee with about a teaspoon of sugar were about 30% less likely to die after seven years compared to people who don't drink coffee at all. So people who drink coffee without sugar were also less likely to die. But get this, not quite as much as the people who put the sugar in. Now, does this mean sugar has health benefits? Well, Dr. Scott Kaiser is with Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica to help unwrap this mystery. He specializes in treating older and elderly patients. So, doctor, I guess the big takeaway here is that coffee can be pretty good for you. But uh, this really amazed me that the if you put the little sugar in there, your statistics are better. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure if that's exactly the takeaway. I'd say that if you added a little sugar, it, it wasn't so bad. And, you know, the important part is we're still talking about 
a teaspoon of sugar on average. But overall, I'd say, hey, how about some welcome health news for once? So, uh, so, so very you think, good news overall. So you think the eight packs of sugar I put in a cup is too much, do you? <laughs> yeah, I, I think you might you might want to cut back a little bit there. And 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 frankly, you know, a lot of the coffee drinks that we might offer at popular chains and whatnot can have a lot of sugar with all of those caramel syrups and whatnot. So we're talking about moderate coffee consumption, which is at one and a half to three and a half cups a day and um, about a teaspoon of sugar in this particular study. You don't have to convince uh, Charles or myself that coffee is good for you, or at least the benefits of it, because, you know, we like it, we enjoy it. But uh, tell us, what are some of the uh, scientific reasons why uh, coffee is good for you? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's hard to say, especially with a study like this, it's really looking at association. But, hey, maybe just enjoying it is is part of it, uh, having some enjoyment in life. But certainly... The antioxidant properties, uh, you know, we have all sorts of free radicals, uh, these, these dangerous molecules that can wreak havoc on our cells. And coffee has antioxidants, which can neutralize or scavenge these free radicals. Uh, so that may be one of the benefits. Uh, you know, similar things have, have come out with tea as well, also a very antioxidant-rich drink. I mean, I wonder if the sugar part of it is that maybe people, I don't know, are more prone, because coffee can be kind of bitter, especially depending on where you get it. I wonder if it's that people are more prone to drink the coffee if it's a little bit on the sweeter side and therefore gain the benefits of drinking coffee. Yeah, again, I mean, it's just really hard to say from this is a big study in the UK, which is, again, it's a little complicated because they drink more tea there too. Um, but a big study in the UK where they looked at people and their patterns over time and, you know, people's patterns change over time. So it's kind of hard to say. Uh, but but the, the real take home was that the sugar didn't hurt. Um, now, when you talk about artificial sweeteners, uh, things got a little messier and uh, there wasn't necessarily that same benefit. So it's really kind of drinking moderate coffee. Uh, OK to add a, a, a moderate, a small amount of sugar. Uh, but artificial sweeteners, uh, a little more uncertainty there could could still be damaging. Everything in moderation. So even if it's just you know coffee black, you don't want to overdo it. I mean, what would you say is you know for a regular coffee drinker, uh, how much is too much? Yeah, I mean, well, this in this study they define moderate as one and a half to three and a half cups. Uh, you know, some other studies have have shown that you know drinking any amount of coffee, uh, even larger amounts, can have benefits. Uh, but in this case, I, I think that one and a half to three and a half cups a day is a pretty good target. Does does uh, decaf count? Yeah, in this study, actually, they looked at decaf, instant, ground. I mean, hey, I'm saying if you're going to drink coffee, drink some good coffee here, people. But um, it didn't matter. Uh, you know, the, the benefit held regardless of, of uh, how it was prepared that way and whether it was fully caffeinated or decaf. So how much coffee do you drink a day? You know, I, I actually, I, I, I don't drink that much coffee. I drink about one one iced coffee a day, which I really enjoy. But I'm a tea drinker. Um, and, uh, you know, not no no offense, no discrimination there. I just enjoy <laughs> tea. Um, but, yeah, I'm a tea drinker. And then uh, I, I really do enjoy a good iced coffee and an occasional latte. Well, Doctor, I think you said the magic words there. I really enjoy it. I talk about the psychological boost that we get from I, I love having my morning coffee. But, you know, maybe you add that little sugar in there and you're feeling even happier. So there you go. Yeah, absolutely. And I can't wait to see more studies on that because, 
you know, as a geriatrician trying to help people live well and age well, uh, it, it really is about that living well part and getting the most out of life, um, connected, purpose, meaning. Uh, and if coffee can give us a little lift to our day and something we really enjoy, I, I think that can't be all bad. All right, Dr. Scott Kaiser with Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica. I will not be seeking a second opinion on that assessment that he gave us. He specializes in treating older and elderly patients. Welcome back to KNX In-Depth. Brian Pingin uh, this week for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Now, we mentioned uh, at the outset that we were supposed to have with us Rick Caruso, who, of course, you know, is running for mayor of the city of Los Angeles. Last week we had uh, Karen Bass with us, but we're told by his people that he's sort of stuck in the middle of an event. I'm not quite sure what the event is, but he's doing something that I presume has something to do with him running for mayor. So we are going to plow ahead. We've got some other really cool things to talk about. And uh, if we can touch base with uh, Rick Caruso a bit later, perhaps we will. If not, uh, then maybe later in the week. In the meantime, uh, let's talk movies. Top Gun Maverick had a record-smashing day, a new Memorial Day weekend record at the box office. It made $156 million domestically over four days. Yeah, that's a big deal as uh, movie theaters try to make their way back uh, from the pandemic and all the closures. Are people even going to go to the movies again? I guess we answered that question. And with us is uh, Mark Malkin, senior editor at Variety and host of the Just for Variety podcast. And so uh, let, let's talk, Mark, about just uh, you know, how this movie is having an impact on uh, moviegoers. It's got a, a really great rating score. Is people are just blown away by this film. People are ab- absolutely blown away by Top Gun Maverick. I think a lot of people weren't sure what to make of it. This, you know, the last time we saw Top Gun was 36 years ago. So was just was this just going to be sort of, you know, Tom Cruise trying to hold on real tight to that fame of 36 years ago? And the movie is resonating everywhere. I have to tell you, I saw it early on, um, and I was blown away by blown blown away much more than I thought I would be. Well, what I find interesting uh, is looking at the the footage and then learning that apparently there's no CGI involved that these were you know all the scenes where we see all the actors uh, flying uh they're actually in jets you know i I presume there's somebody in in the front seat that we can't see who's really (laughs) really flying the plane but still they're there pulling all those g-forces doing all those maneuvers and i i wonder if that's ever even been done before to that extent you know, when it comes to Tom Cruise, he has made a career out of doing stunt work, doing action work. That is not CGI. That is not fake. That is not done by stunt people. When you see Tom Cruise flying a plane, that is Tom Cruise flying a plane. You see Tom Cruise jumping out of a plane, guess what? It's Tom Cruise jumping out of a plane. And this was really a big um, point about the movie where you want to see it on the big screen. And they really were driving this home paramount saying, this is a movie. If you can, if you feel safe going to a theater, you should be seeing this this movie in theaters and Tom was adamant. Tom Cruise said, I am not going on a streamer first. I, you know, I, I owe my career to movie theater owners and I'm going to make good on it and only show it in movie theaters at the beginning. You can put a camera in a fighter jet cockpit and just you know, fly around for two hours and everybody like, Hey, that's great. That's pretty entertaining. But you know, to make a fully well-rounded movie, you need you know good characters, you need a good story. And apparently this movie has all of that uh, too. It really does. It has the characters. It has the characters that you loved. You have 
um, characters, you know, looking back, obviously, in the 36 years, you have new characters, you have drama, you have romance, you have emotion. Like, one, one thing I think a lot of people will probably tell you is that they got emotional watching Top Gun Maverick. I don't think a lot of people expected that. And I have to tell you, I got emotional. Maybe I shed a tear or two here and there. And it wasn't during the, you know, the fighter scenes, which are incredible. But the story really has this great story about relationships and forgiveness and redemption. Um, and it's just crossing all, you know, uh, uh, generational boundaries. You, know, you have people who first saw it 36 years ago. And now people, you don't need to see the first Top Gun to see the second one. Well, uh, Tom Cruise is back. Val Kilmer's back, which is amazing, given all his health problems he's been through over the last few years. He's there. Yeah, I don't want to spoil anything for anyone, but they really handle it in a beautiful, really beautiful way, um, which was really exciting to see. You know, I saw it in a small screening, so it wasn't with, you know, the general population, so I didn't see that reaction. But people are reacting to it. People are getting emotional about it again. You know, there are parents who are bringing their kids, bringing their grandkids at this point. But you know what I wonder, Mark? I wonder how many people who saw it when it first came out 36 years ago were watching the movie now thinking the same thought. How does Tom Cruise still look like that? I mean, that that's, you know, listen, that we say that about a lot of people in Hollywood. I wish I aged like Tom Cruise ages in 36 years. I don't know what these people drink. I don't know what they do on their off time. But, you know... <laughs> Again, to Tom's credit, in terms of the action work, this is a man who is almost 60 years old, and he's doing his own action work. And we're going to see it even more because there's a new Mission Impossible movie coming out this year. So it's just he just I think he's just shocking people and surprising people that he is still going. Well, Mark maybe answered the question right there. How does he stay young? Well, I mean, he just keeps doing all these incredible stunts and uh, keeps in shape. That, That keeps him going, you'd have to think. I mean, I guess, but I, I know if I did all those dumb words, it would keep me young and put me in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 of course, I, I mean, we're watching, this movie was, was actually in the can for a couple of yeah. years, right? Because it was supposed to be out right when the, I think, the pandemic was starting yeah. and then the movie theaters closed and all that. So we're kind of looking at images of people as they looked, what, two and a half, three years ago, really? Yeah, it, it is pretty incredible. This movie was supposed to come out over two years ago. And, you know, because of COVID and uh, COVID stops and starts, they said, you know what, we're not going to release it yet. And again, like I said earlier, Tom said, you know, I am sure, I'm sure the studio said to him, like, let's just put it on the streamer. You'll make your money yeah, back. Sure. Top and Tom was adamant. Tom actually called theater owners and said to them, You've been loyal to me. I'm going to be loyal to you. And this really is a movie that should be seen but, on the big screen if you can feel safe going to the movie. But, you know, I, the reason I brought up that thing about some people were thinking, how does he look like that after 36 years? And that it was like really three years ago when this thing was in the can. Because I'm kind of secretly hoping that maybe in the past three years, if you looked at him now, he's like all wrinkled up. He's not that wrinkled. He's not that, <laughs> Hollywood is not very wrinkled. You know that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Wish. Wishful thinking. Mark Malkin, Senior Editor at Variety, host of the Just for Variety podcast. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. And a quick uh, update. We mentioned a few times in the show earlier that we were expecting to have the last half hour with Rick Caruso, who's running for mayor of L.A. Last week we had Karen Bass with us. He apparently got stuck at some event, and so we will try to reschedule that uh, for later in the week. Meantime, a jury 
has resumed deliberations in the defamation lawsuits of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. The seven-person civil jury heard closing arguments Friday and deliberated for about two hours before leaving for the long Memorial Day weekend. They resumed this morning. Depp sued Heard for $50 million, claiming she libeled him by describing herself as a public figure representing domestic abuse. Now, Heard filed a $100 million counterclaim after his lawyer called her allegations a hoax. With us now to sort it out is legal analyst Lou Shapiro and Lou are, are we at this point? It seems like a, for a lot of people, they they just want this back and forth to be over, some sort of resolution. What do you foresee and now that we're at this point? Well, generally, the longer a trial lasts, the longer a jury deliberates. So while everybody wants closure and finality and, and a verdict today, uh, it's probably not going to happen. There's a lot of evidence to go through, even though some may argue that some of the evidence should not have been admitted or was uh, in a way comical. But at the same time, there is a lot to go through on both ends because there are really two suits, one against the other. So in light of that, it could take a few days till we get some kind of uh, verdict. Does anybody really emerge in, in because of who they are and the nature of the testimony that has been very public? Does anybody emerge from this, regardless of what the verdict is, as, as a victor in any way? It's a great question. See, going into this trial, uh, Depp had lost a ton of business in the hundreds of millions, supposedly, in movie deals and so forth as a result of the article that Heard had, had posted. So Depp's goal in this trial was not necessarily to win any money, but it's really to get his side of the story out into the public, to get his narrative out there, to overcome the B2 cancellation movement. And I think his camp already at this point feels they've done that. They, are, they have their mock jurors. They're, they're feeding, they have good uh, pulse and stats on what's going on in the public, so they have a good read on how he has been received. And I think they feel like no matter how the jury comes back, they've achieved their goal. But is he a bit toxic right now just because of some of these you know, allegations leveled against him and some of the things we've heard in court? Do you think that studios might want to cool off a bit uh, still for a little while longer before they're willing to jump on board of them again for projects? I think in the Hollywood world, if you ask most people on the inside, they will tell you that a lot of people who swim in that space uh, have all sorts of weird backgrounds and stories and interactions and encounters that they would not want to be aired into the public. So at the end of the day, uh, I don't think it's going to be a causing uh, Depp any kind of long-term damage. I think he's done what he was out to do, and we will be seeing him in, in movies uh, sooner than later. I mean, do you think that this type of trial involving personalities such as, as uh, Johnny Depp and uh, Anchor Heard is going to lead to, because Hollywood is filled, unfortunately, uh, with stories kind of like this in one way or another involving other celebrities. Do you think we're more likely to see trials because of this? Because usually PR agents try to keep things out of courtrooms for all kinds of obvious reasons. I don't think we're going to see a trial of this nature anytime soon because it's very costly. As we've seen, a lot of personal stories and encounters come out into the public. And it could be that both camps look back on this and say, you know, I didn't expect all this to come out. I didn't expect it to get this down and dirty. And there's probably some regrets uh, on some levels in that respect. So I think if you're another celebrity couple looking at this, you're saying to yourselves, I don't want to get myself into this situation. Yeah, but at the same time, Lou, we're talking about somebody who alleges domestic abuse. Uh, you know, what about you know, other women out there who feel that they have 
uh, been abused. I mean, that's you know, something where you consider the PR of it. I mean, you want to get it out there if you really do. You know, the people who do want to come forward about this and, and, and make a point, hope it doesn't happen to other people. Do you think there could be other cases out there like that where, you know, they, they want to come forward to serve some greater good? Right. So there, there is a concern about what they call the chilling effect and that it will that as a result of this suit by Depp against Heard, other potential uh, victims of domestic violence uh, would be scared to come forward because they would be afraid of having to face the same lawsuit. And th- look, it, it's not a perfect world. Uh, it's moving forward. Uh, this now will be a concern. This will be taken into account. And before a, a, an alleged victim comes forward, they are going to be told, you, you better have the evidence to back this up before you write something like this in the Post or the newspaper, because if you don't, you could be facing a trial like this one. All right, that is legal analyst Lou Shapiro. Uh, Lou, thanks for joining us. This is KNX In-Depth.